today's episode. We open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 46. Following the defeat of the Philistine outpost, King Saul has made a rash oath that no one should eat anything until he has avenged himself on his enemies. Jonathan, who didn't hear the oath, ate some honey and felt refreshed, but then Saul had found out, and he was ready to put Jonathan to death. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Wednesday, May 17th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. You can visit them online to learn about all of their amazing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 46, and that's the Reverend Robert Moeller, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota, and Zion Lutheran Church in Jasper, Minnesota. Pastor Muller, welcome to Thy Strong Word. All right. Just have a, a couple of corrections. There'd be a pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Jasper, oh. Minnesota, and St. John's in Trosky. Oh, my goodness. How in the world? So these are, oh, well, we will fix that for the next time. And I should know that because you're in my circuit. That's crazy. Pastor <laughs> Muller. All right. Oh, well, I apologize for that. We'll definitely fix it. But uh, welcome back to the show. You've been on once before. It's great to have you on again. Uh, today, we're going to be covering 1 Samuel 14 and Saul's rash vow. But uh, before we get into that, I just want to ask you, how have things been going in your neck of the woods? It's certainly warm in our area. Uh, how has Easter tri- Eastertide been treating you, brother? Uh, the, it's been quite well. We're getting ready for tomorrow night. We're going to be having a joint ascension service with uh, a couple of the other congregations that are within our circuit too. So looking looking forward to that. Um, uh, Easter is always a, a wonderful time for for gathering and for um, just the the get the hallelujahs back. I guess <laughs> absolutely for sure. Well, great. Well, I, uh, I, I blessings on your service that you'll be having. I guess that'll be tomorrow on Ascension Day. Well, I tell you what, before we dive into our text, uh, I'd love for you to lead us this morning in a word of prayer, if you would. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which makes us wise unto salvation. As we study your word today, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your son, Jesus Christ, in these actions that, that often seem so unchristlike. We thank you, Lord, that you've seen fit to, to show us examples of, of uh, fallen humans as we are, and how you work through each and every one of us, and how you bring forgiveness and you give life. We ask that you would bless our time together. Let your Holy Spirit lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, brother. Well, today we're heading into the second half. Uh, We're going to get almost to the end of the chapter today of chapter 14. But yesterday we talked about Jonathan defeating the Philistines with his uh, surreptitious covert operation along with his armor bearer. And then, of course, uh, Saul had joined in along with all of those Israelites who had previously been in hiding, and they were able to 
uh, defeat in great part the Philistines that day. Um, anything else you think the people should know about where we've been before we get into the text for uh, a sign for us today? Uh, yeah, I, I think that the the passage that you that you had before this one for today kind of starts. We start seeing a a big difference between the king Saul and his son Jonathan, and that's just going to get um, magnified more and more as as you go through First Samuel. We I guess we see um, how Saul, who began so humble, is is beginning to think a little bit too highly of himself. Well, absolutely. I mean, he did have sort of a good start, but, you know, his true nature is showing forth. The fact that he's narcissistic and and really paranoid in a lot of ways is going to become more and more evident as we learn more about Saul. And I think a lot of those description of him uh, really is to set up a juxtaposition between him and, of course, King David, who is going to follow him. But we're not quite there yet. Uh, today, Saul is still king. Um, his son has secretly went out and and waged a battle, which everybody joined in with. And now we have sort of the results of that battle. Um, I'm going to read chapter 14, verses 24 through 30 to get us started. Here we go. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So we'll stop just right there to look at it. So, yeah, they're, they're heading into the forest. It looks like this is a vow that Saul had put on the people previous to the battle that we just heard about. And, and I guess as a result, it sounds like maybe... Maybe the, they didn't they didn't kill as many Philistines as they could have because they ran out of energy. Take us through this text, brother. Uh, what's being said here? Um, yes, as the the Philistines had been routed and and they were fleeing westward, uh, the, and then it's used the word the the Israelite troops were hard pressed after the long fight. They, they definitely were weary and saw compounds that weariness by forcing his men uh, to to take the oath or, or to listen to the oath that they'll not eat a bite until, as he puts it, I am avenged on my enemies. I think that's an important statement that we have there, too. That, you notice how he misses the whole point of the attack. It's not his honor that's at stake, but uh, Saul is perceiving this conflict as a, a personal vendetta. Whereas uh, as we get into it, John Jonathan sees it as carrying out God's plan and command. It was God's plan and command that they would 
that they would wipe out the, the Philistines and, and take care of them. And so we see there. Well, yeah, the, it, the... It, I was going to say, it definitely shows that, that he is, he's not got the right mindset. We've seen that time and again, you know, he sees them as his enemy, which I suppose in a vicarious way, they certainly are his enemy, but he doesn't recognize that Yahweh is behind this battle, that God had brought him into this, this kingship to defeat the Philistines. And of course, by talking about his enemies, he's also, I think, taking away from God what's due him. And that is, he's taking away the fact that the battles are won and lost by the Lord's will. Yes, and that, that certainly was true in the, the battle just previous previous to this, uh, where you start with just just Jonathan and, and with, with one other with him to begin with. And then after it's going well, that's when Saul starts picking up. Absolutely. So we have here um, the fact that he says, you know, I am avenged on my enemies. So they couldn't eat until the evening and they come into this forest and there's honey all the ground. I, what, I, what I think is fascinating as you look at this, think about being in battle. Think about uh, all of the, the effort expended. In fact, it kind of reminds me of these MREs, these meals ready to eat that our military uh, forces uh, receive. When I was a kid during the Gulf War, they used to bring these into our schools and we would all share an MRE with each other. Uh, I bring this up only to say that those MREs typically had like two or 3,000 calories in one meal. And the reason why is because battle takes a lot of energy. So, so Saul had really handicapped his, I mean, not only did he, it depends on how you look at it, but during the previous battle, did he stop the high priest from, from, um, or the priest, I should say, from interceding with God, he stops them. Either he felt, okay, that the battle is ours. God has already answered our prayers. I, we don't really, we discussed this yesterday. We're not really sure why he did that, but he's handicapped them too, by saying that they can't even eat, uh, and, and. Boy, I tell you what, if anything is needed in battle, it's that energy. And this honey would have provided them with, well, very quick sugar, instant energy. Yeah, I was thinking of the, the old saying that an army marches on its stomach. The idea that, that you've got to keep the army well fed. I was also reminded, kind of, you mentioned the MREs. I was thinking of in terms of long-distance runners um, that will often take some gel packs with them that are lo loaded with high glucose, uh, kind of very similar to what the, the honey would be to, to provide that extra energy as they're going. That's true. That would have, that would, that's, I think it's even a better analogy. Uh, I think of some of these survival meals too, where they're just basically, you know, quick energy, sugar, high calorie dense meals. But yeah, so he handicaps his own people. And, and so Jonathan, he is not around when Saul makes this order. He didn't hear it. And so he goes in and he does what is absolutely natural. And that is he just he eats some of the honeycomb. And the people are afraid to do it because they're afraid of the king. Um, it's not that Jonathan wasn't afraid. It's just he didn't know. And they tell him about it. And Jonathan is indignant because, well, Saul has troubled the people by causing this. He's. I think the phrase we would use, Pastor, is he burdened their conscience, right? He he told them something was unlawful, which really isn't unlawful at all. 
No, that's correct. I think that's a, a good way of describing that. Uh, that it wasn't. I think we think troubling the land, and uh, it wasn't the land, but it was the people of the land, most certainly, and that was going to be affected. What do you think he was? What do you? Why do you think that Paul? Uh, sorry, Saul <laughs> made this rash vow. What was he trying to accomplish? Do you... I, I. My thought, I guess, would be that he's um, trying to put the best construction on it is that he sees that the victory is within sight, and so perhaps that we can wipe them out. And he's under the mistaken idea that if you just press press harder and harder, that just by sheer will we're going to defeat them that way while, while we've got them. Um, kind of be like a, a basketball coach who is going to keep pressing his team and they practice harder and harder and but uh, they don't take any time off the day before day before uh, the actual game is, and so they're all wore out uh, as they get ready for that. I suppose that makes sense, right? Don't take time to eat anything. Just keep going, keep fighting, keep going harder and harder. The people are afraid to eat because of the oath. Uh, all he can fixate on is avenging from his enemies, uh, which is a little humorous because he didn't even start the battle it was jonathan his son and jonathan unlike saul had sought god's will for the matter whereas saul is taking everything into his hands and we see time and again how saul is not living up to the king he could have been and in fact his his son jonathan is really being more of a king at least a king after god's own heart than than saul is but Jonathan says, you know, my father's troubled the land. Look how my eyes have come bright. I guess I guess that's a nice way of just saying, you know, he's uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? He's got the energy. What if all of our people could have eaten? And then that's where we get this last verse. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. He blames his father. Not that they haven't run off the Philistines, because they have, but boy, they could have they could have gotten even more if they hadn't run out of energy. Well, why don't we add to our conversation verses 31 through 35? Here we go. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people uh, pounced on the spoil, and they took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against Yahweh by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against Yahweh by eating the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to Yahweh. It was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. So we get this description that they struck down the Philistines from these between these two cities. Some of these city names can really trip you up. Ijalon, I think, is the way to say that. And then the people were very faint. So we're told again that the people really had no energy. And as a result, they were so hungry. They pounced on the spoil, took sheep and oxen and calves, and then they ate them with the blood, which was against God's law, right? That, that's correct. Um, 
yes, the, the idea that they, they slaughtered them on the ground kind of comes into that and with the altar there later because uh, slaughtering on the ground would, would not allow the, the blood to drain from them uh, so that they would be eating, uh, would be eating uh, the meat with the blood in it. Typically, I guess they would hang them up or, you know, in this case, that one part of the reason for that rock was they could get them, get them off the ground so that the blood can drain out. This really gives me a vision of what it kind of looks like when their leader makes them take a vow that is not, I guess, one that God has required. It's, it's, it's superficial even. It's even to their great harm. And this vow has led them to additional sin because they had not been able to eat when it would have been fine for them to do so because of this illegal vow that uh, Saul, this rash vow, I suppose we should say, that Saul had put on them. Now, when they were at the brink of so much hunger they couldn't stand it, they actually violated a law of God. Um, I, I think that's an interesting question. I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the, it goes all the, all the way back to after Noah and his family get out of the ark, and God uh, at this point then uh, allows them to to eat the, the flesh of animals, but but not the blood. And and so it would be, had been a, a rule for for centuries for for them in the Old Testament. Uh, one that the, actually this is as I was doing a little bit of study. This is the only time in which it in which uh, the old testament records that it was violated really okay i didn't know that so this is that's pretty unique that this is the only not that they didn't violate it before but this right. is this time yeah. it's recorded huh yeah okay to me that kind of stresses that what a yeah what a big contrast that was going going from uh listening to the oath that wasn't really required and then um, being so hungry that you just go ahead and, and not listen to a, a long-standing rule, because I guess because God had said at you know at that point that the, the life is in the blood, and the the blood was to be for the sacrifices, because the, the shedding of blood is for the forgiveness of sins, and they they weren't supposed to uh, think as some of the the other tribes and 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 people around them that that look to the that lifeblood for um, strength and giving them strength, I guess, probably, um, which kind of fits in here where they don't have much strength, but. Right. You know, and that is about strength. They don't have the strength, not only to fight because of this vow, but then they've, they've now kind of had the strength to keep God's law removed from them by this rash vow. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they, they would have known not to do it, Obviously, because someone reported it to Saul that they were disobeying God by what they were doing. But, you know, in these desperate situations, it becomes even harder uh, if your strength and your will is is battered for you to, you know, follow God's law. And I got to tell you, this is this is just serendipitous. I hadn't thought about this before today, but this morning I have a Wednesday morning Bible study and what we've been going through is the Augsburg Confession, and today we just happen to be on Article 23, which is of uh, a marriage of the priests. And uh, we talked about this without talking about 1 Samuel 14 at all, <laughs> but one of the things we talked about was this, this rash vow, so to speak, You know, the, the, that God commands or commends, I should even say, marriage, 
as a blessing, right? You don't have to get married, but you certainly can get married, and it's a blessing. That marriage, um, that people who are single and 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 are called to celibacy certainly have a gift, but no one should be forced to celibacy. And one of the reasons why the Lutherans uh, held up that their priests should be able to get married is because, well, A, God's commanded it, but B, part of marriage is to give a proper context to lead a chaste life. And when you, um, when you are taking a vow that you don't have the gift to uphold, like celibacy, then what did it lead to in the historic church? It led to a lot of sexual depravity. I mean, perhaps we could argue it continues to lead to that. So here we have a very similar thing. Um, and I know it's, it doesn't seem similar, but we have a leadership saying, take this vow. In this case, don't eat. In that case, don't marry. And they have a hard time because of taking this vow that they shouldn't have to take. And it results not in more holy people, but in more sinful behavior. Um, and I don't know. I just it just came to my head. What a crazy coincidence. But it just shows you, I think, a little deeper view of, of why this was so important, why his rash vow ends up in Scripture, not, not because of marriage in particular, but because of how leadership needs to uh, lead people to follow God's will and not burden them with any laws that might that might either contradict God's will or cause them to be weak so that they can't uh, uh, follow after God. Yes, and I guess I'm I'm at least impressed at this case that we see that that Saul's horrified by by what he sees with with this that he even realizes at this point how terrible it is. I don't think that he see, that he recognizes that it's because of of the the rash vow that he had done he's not uh, not taking too much uh, too much blame for that but the, that he's looking then for okay we need to build an altar and then uh, that noticeably that this is the first altar that uh, he built to the lord um, uh, might say something too yeah, I think you're absolutely right. He's not going to take any personal responsibility. I doubt we're going to read anywhere where, where Saul says, you know, yeah, you know what? I really put you in this position. I shouldn't have done that. You know, David will do stuff like that. David will feel guilty if people die because of his decisions. David will feel um, culpable when his leadership doesn't lead them the right way. But no, not Saul. Absolutely not. In fact, it, it, it seems to be something that is... Um, what would we say? Uh, I guess uh, God pleasing, right? He's standing up for God's law, but I, with his personality, you also have to, it has to make you wonder if it's just not another venue by which he can exercise his authority. This guy who started off very scared to lead, um, started off pretty good, but has quickly, you know, fallen into just narcissism and paranoia. Uh, here we have him uh, exercising. God's judgment against the people by calling them to repentance, giving them an ac uh, an ability to do it right, which is all good things, but it does make you question his motivation a little bit. But still, he does. He creates an altar. He builds the first altar. Yeah, and I don't know if the kings were in the habit of building a lot of altars, uh, but it does maybe make you wonder, is this, is this being the first time he's built the altar to the Lord, uh, would uh, another king have done so already is this telling us that 
you know, he really hasn't been as faithful or is it just sort of something they're mentioning in the narrative? I don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah, I guess as you mentioned that, I think I'll have to go back and look a little bit about when what David does when he becomes king. Uh, we know that he, he, we know that he works toward building a house for God and things like that. But oh, that's true. That's true. Um, you know, even though God, you know, doesn't necessarily. <laughs> we know how that goes, right? God's like, well, right. I, I didn't tell you to build me a house, but He it, seeks exactly. to, and that heart right. is there. Interesting. Well, anything else in this section? You know, we're coming up close on a break, so I don't want to go into the next section just yet, but anything else that we've covered that people really should uh, should know or should stand out to them? I guess in, in addition to uh, to not uh, not having built an altar to the Lord that, that Saul hadn't even mentioned Yahweh, um, not even when he was pronouncing the curse that he didn't, didn't mention his name as far as for the one who cursed, uh, even though he's he alone's the one who saves and grants victory. That it's Jonathan who relies on Yahweh for success. Oh, that is a good point and something I hadn't noticed. Yeah, he says, "Cursed be the man who eats food uh, until it's evening, until I am avenged on my enemies." But you're right; he doesn't say God will curse or curse by Yahweh. He he just says, "Cursed." That's an interesting. Point. I, I think it is yet another indication that he's put himself in the place of God. You know, as a, as a king, he's pretty much separated himself from God's spokesperson, who at the time would be Samuel. I think Samuel's still around. And then he, um, or at least he did at the beginning for sure. And, and the, you know, Jonathan, he heeds, we're going to find out later, he heeds a God's seers and prophets, think of Gad and others, uh, Nathan later on. So, so yeah, I, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Well, as we look at this text, as we see all the things that God is telling us through this, I think above all, we are, we're being shown that leadership is important. I'll tell you what, folks, I think that we'll take a break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, Pastor uh, Moeller and I will keep on going through chapter 14. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Robert Moeller, Jr., pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. 
Trinity Lutheran Church in Jasper, Minnesota, and St. John Lutheran Church in Trosky, Minnesota. Apologies again at the top of the show for getting those wrong. I don't know how I did that. Well, anyway, I want to thank you at home for joining us this morning. I pray that God blesses you through our study. If you know someone who might like the show, uh, you can let them know that they can tune in over the air in St. Louis on AM850. They can listen live or on demand at KFUO.org. They can hear the program as a podcast or on KFUO's own mobile app. Another great way to tune in, as I've mentioned the past few shows, is if you have a smart speaker, just ask it to tune into KFUO. I only bring it up because I've been doing that lately, and it works really slick. I have an Alexa, and it works great. But anyway, as always, I'm also available to answer any questions you have or hear your feedback. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook also. Just look Phil Boo. And uh, you can drop by, say hello, or ask a question. It's up to you. Either way, I'm just very grateful to you for being loyal listeners. Now back to our text. So, Pastor Moeller, you know, we've been looking at this so far. We've seen how Saul's rash uh, vow has that he's made the people made the people take has caused uh, Jonathan to be in his sights, but it's also caused the. the people to sin, and and he he rectifies that by building them an altar, sort of a an ad hoc altar, as, as sometimes is done in the Old Testament, right there in the middle of the field. Um, let's read into the next part, and let's see what happens now. Starting with verse thirty six, then Saul said, "Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them." And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as Yahweh lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. There was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, We'll do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said, O Yahweh God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Yahweh, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Let's pause right there at the end of 42. All right, so lots of stuff going on here. Um, Saul wants to go down and plunder the Philistines, but he's asking God about it. Uh, I guess, show us what's happening here. What what is he doing when the priest says, let's go and talk to God? Uh, Explain how he's he's inquiring of God and and how this all ends up uh, happening. It, It ends up with David, I'm sorry, pardon me, Jonathan being in the crosshairs, but it takes a little bit to get there. What's what's Saul doing? Saul is using it as we get along there anyway. He's using the Urim and the Thummim as as you had read there. Um, we don't know exactly what those were. There are a, a number of number of thoughts on, on what that would be. 
I don't know how much you want to go into that right now. But. Oh, as much as you want, go into it. Because I think that's a, that's, a, that's a concept I think people might be a little confused with. We've talked about it a little. You know, it, it seems if we were to do such things today, it would be putting God to the test. But these, uh, these are devices that they would have carried in the ephods of the priest to, I guess, seek God's will, right? That's correct. Yeah, and the uh, Urim means lights, uh, as near as I can tell, and Thamim means uh, completeness or perfection. And so there's kind of a, a thought of the, the two going together of perfect perfection. Um, as far as uh, suggestions as to what those names signify, then that that uh, some some say that it could be a hendiadis, a hendiadis, which would be expression of a single idea that we use with two words, you know, like nice and warm or something like that, when you could just probably use one word. And so sometimes we'll see that that uh, Urim is just mentioned by it by itself, that that happens where they appear as separate objects. Um, so that's one possibility. A second is that they were two singular objects and each, each were separate. And this passage kind of seems a little bit like, to me, it kind of reminds me of heads and tail. You take a coin and heads and tails are part of that. But that only works when it's a yes or no question, really. Another, another uh, I guess a, a thought about that is it, it often talks to when, when they are mentioned, when they first mention is in Exodus 28, where Moses is instructed to put them in the breast piece of, of the ephod, as you said. They're said to be for the purpose of decision or judgment. Also connected with that then would be that, that we're, we're told that when we get to Numbers, Joshua is getting ready for battle. And he stands before Eliezer, the priest, uh, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And the word will go out, and his word shall come, come in, both he and Joshua and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. That, that phrase translated as, at his word, is literally according to his mouth. So, so Moses is stating that through Urim, that Yahweh is giving the message uh, that uh, that's authorizing the military actions. And so it's more, more than just a, a question of yes or no, often, oftentimes, that it seems to be in some way in which God is speaking through the, through the priest or, or who, is, who is using this as he has given it to uh, for answering, uh, answering more, of a, more of a question or more of the questions or, or more of the guidance, especially for going into battle. Yeah, definitely. It does seem, though, as you said earlier, that it, it yes or no, or it needs to be a, um, <laughs> a, a one of two sort of solution. I guess I've always thought, and I know there are lots of different uh, understandings of what this could have been. I've almost thought of it as with the light and completion or the dark and maybe something something dark colored and something light colored. And, you know, if the light showed up, then then that's that's the that's that answer and the dark showed up that was that answer i've also heard that you know it would light up or in some way some of the images on the breastplate there's all kinds of different understandings out there we know it was lost of course whatever it was but in this case it wasn't yes or no but it still was um, a dyad right it was still one of two choices and he i guess he feels 
or he is, being ignored by God. The priest says, let's draw near to God, and God wants to know, should I go do it? Uh, Will you give them into the hands of Israel? And it says, but he did not answer him that day. So now he wants to know whose sin is causing God to be silent. Um, What I think is interesting here, Pastor, is God has already spoke, already said that the reason why he's elevated Saul to kingship is to get glory over the Philistines, to destroy the Philistines, to judge the Philistines, however you want to call it. So when he says, you know, will you give them into the hands of Israel? I, I know he's talking about this particular battle, but in a way that question's already been answered, right? God's already said, I'm going to give them into your hands and you're the king. Yeah, I guess it kind of occurs to me that that's kind of kind of similar as far as for in our, when we're praying for spiritual things, we don't need to ask according to your will. Because, For instance, if we ask for God's Holy Spirit to lead us, we know that's God's will. And right. so we don't need to ask for that when it would be more f- physical things. Um, that's when we that's when we would want to make sure that we're asking for God's will to be done there because we don't know it here. Yes, I think that they do. Uh, he should know God's will anyway is to go after right. the Philistines to take care of them. Exactly. I mean, and, and that also applies today in another sense. I like what you were saying, because that obviously resonates with a lot of folks. But at the same time, every time this is brought up, I usually will ask the guests, you know, well, isn't that kind of putting the Lord to the test? You know, Saul saying, Saul saying, okay, I, I'm Lord, if this happens, and I, and I talk about this later with David, but if this happens, then I know your will is with me. If that happens, then I know your will is not with me or show me your will. It, it just seems like it's, it shows a sign of distrust. But at the same time, this Urim and Thummim is the method by which God gave them to inquire of his will. So in that case, they're doing something right. But we talked about it had to be a a dyad, right? Either a yes or a no. In this case, it's, you know, they cast it once to say, okay, is it um, the people or me and my son, the leadership? So is it the people or the leadership? And the, the text says in a very weird way, it's strange to me, that Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So I guess it's almost like maybe judgment even. Like when when the whenever whatever is done is done, the people escaped the culpability, but Jonathan and Saul were taken, whatever that means. And then of course he divided up again, but not yes or no, but this time Jonathan or Saul. And it lands on Jonathan. Anything to that language of being taken and escaping? Because that just stands out. To me. Um, yeah, I guess that, guess that there would be a, a couple of a couple of things there. Um, I'm I'm thinking first of all of of the uh, the ark uh, with Noah for one thing, where the the people are taken and uh, and Noah and his family escape. That it's a case where you don't want to be taken. Um, also, when we get get into the New Testament, um, pro, you know, um, passages often taken by some Christians uh, talking about rapture and so forth, uh, talking about being taken. Um, I think that they they misunderstand that too. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Well, wh- whatever it specifically means, it basically goes through the Urim, Urim and Thummim that Jonathan is the one who is culpable. It does make me wonder, though, is it is this telling us, though, then that Yahweh is affirming that he is being silent to Saul because 
Jonathan has um, not followed the vow that he didn't even know about that his father imposed upon the people, which wasn't a very good vow. Um, that part, I guess, leaves me with some questions. You know, if if Saul was kind of doing this on his own, not even seeking after God's will, doing it, is this because regardless of whether or not the king is making a rash vow, Jonathan was still, um, I guess, required to follow after what the king had said? Or is this just being interpreted by Saul to mean those things? I guess what I'm saying is, is God really speaking to him through these Urim and Thummim? Or is this just how he's interpreting it? Or do we know? I don't know. Have you thought about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I would lean toward the that that's how Saul's in interpreting it, but that God will be using you know, even that interpretation, even even that, I don't know, if you, might, you could say misuse of the, the Urim, but um, as I kind of think about it, but... Um, when we get into the next next section, there we're, we'll we'll be able to talk about that a little bit about how God actually use it uses it, and I think that's where we can see where we can bring Christ into it a little bit more too. Sounds good. Well, let's do that then. Um, let's start with forty three, and we're going to read all the way through forty six, which is the end of our text for today. Here we go. Then Saul said to Jonathan, "Tell me what you have done." And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as Yahweh lives. There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul says to Jonathan, right, tell me what you've done. He says, okay, I ate some honey, but he's ready to stand for the punishment. Take us through this. How does it point us to Jesus? Um, as far as for being willing to to take the punishment, even uh, though he's not guilty, I guess guess would certainly would certainly be in there. That uh, well, he he confesses his sin in, in this case, but he tell tells what he's doing, and I don't think Jonathan certainly didn't realize there was a vow. First of all, um, it was a, a rash vow as well, and um, and as we go up go a little bit later i don't want to get into the the ransoming too much but i think there we see the the people acting as christ by by ransoming uh, jonathan well absolutely i mean we see a lot of type types of what christ will do for us you know jonathan interestingly enough stands willing to take the punishment as you pointed out he i'm certain that he doesn't agree with it because he basically already said he didn't agree with it he already said that, mm -hmm. listen, this was a bad idea from dad. The, this is why we didn't do as well as we could have done in battle. But he says, here I am. I will die. But then Saul says, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die. What does that mean? I, you know, there's a cross-reference of Ruth there. Um, you know, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So this is a saying. What is Saul saying? Well, Saul, Saul is saying that may, may 
what I'm what the curse is on you ha- uh, happen to me if I don't carry this out. And so I surely need to do this is kind of I think it's the, the third vow that, that Saul makes in, in the, this episode as we're going out that he's saying uh, that he's calling on God to mete out punishment on him if Jonathan's not executed for his for his transgression. Which is kind of interesting because, well, he doesn't end up getting this uh, execution. The curse doesn't land on Jonathan because of the people. Um, We don't have this in the English, but in the Septuagint, uh, right before this verse, uh, there's an an addition, I should say, or maybe something that's been left out in the Hebrew version. But it says, whoever Yahweh identifies by lot shall be put to death. But the people said to Saul, absolutely not. But Saul overrode the people, so they cast lots between him and Jonathan, his son. So, you know, if you if you add that context to the position before, the people were already against Saul even using the Urim and Thummim to decide between him and uh, between him and his son. And this is another we've been talking about taking responsibility. Yes, Jonathan broke the vow, but Saul was the one responsible for giving the rash vow. So it's another example of not taking, I guess, the the concupiscence, not understanding his concupiscence, not not taking uh, into his heart the idea that he is responsible, at least in part, for what's happening. And so he says, yeah, if, you, if God do so to me, if this doesn't happen, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And then, of course, Jonathan doesn't die. And they point to Jonathan's, uh, I guess, covert operation that started this victory to begin with. Uh, and so it says, as Yahweh lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. And I, and I love this, for he has worked with God this day in contrast to working against God or working on your own that Saul had been doing. What does this connotate? And tell us how the people ransomed Jonathan. Well, despite, despite all the despite all the. Uh, Oaths and things in, in which uh, Saul was offering uh, that that uh, he he was far from God as opposed to Jonathan as a, as is mentioned there um, who was being protected uh, the ransom uh, they placed their own lives in jeopardy that if Jonathan were harmed um, they would be thereby paying for his life um, with the offer of their own lives and so. It, Kind of, you're going to have to go through us, uh, Saul, in order to get to Jonathan, and so they're they're willing to to put themselves up to it too. Absolutely, you know, if he dies, we all die with him. That's certainly something that uh, you, you, as a king, you don't want to hear. You don't want to see a mutiny out there. Um, but rightly so, they're standing up for Jonathan because he's he's the victor that day. I think that also is a little bit of foreshadowing of what we're going to see with David. Right. Because then when David has his victories and Saul is embarrassed by them, right? Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. He then sets to put David to death. So I am I wouldn't be surprised, although I don't think it's clear in the text, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of this was just Saul's jealousy of Jonathan. Jonathan started this, you know, SEAL Team Six mission that ended in this victory. Jonathan is the one who knew better than to not eat when you need energy for battle. Uh, And so Jonathan ends up getting the blame and now he's going to put Jonathan to death. 
And if it were not for the people, then Jonathan would have been put to death. Well, that foreshadows what he does with David. David is wanting to be put to, to death. I'm sorry, David is uh, Saul is wanting to put to death mainly because of his jealousy. And is that not what we see with Jesus, the jealousy of the religious rulers who look at Jesus and say, this man should be put to death? Would it not be better that one man die than the, than the, the, whole, uh, the whole kingdom? So I, I see all of these connections, and I'm sure you do too. Yes. Okay, a little bit more on, on the oaths too, because <clears throat> they— I think they highlight the folly and uselessness of rash vows and oaths there. Psalm 26, verse 2 reminds us, Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. God alone is the one <clears throat> who can make a curse effective. So even if you pronounce a curse, that, that curse isn't going to come upon anyone unless uh, unless god makes it effective so we see not only is jonathan freed from that curse with the people ransoming but but so is saul who in in effect had uh wished that curse upon himself if jonathan was not uh was not put to death also it sounds like you're saying that because even that curse is unauthorized that he has nothing to nothing to worry about although i mean we certainly know that Saul is uh, is is not going to is he's going to meet an unhappy end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, I mean, if it was if it was within God's will that Jonathan die there, uh, that that certainly even a uh, a bad curse can can have its effects as as we see in the Book of Judges a, a time or two when when such uh, oaths are taken, or um, we can see uh, with Herod and. And uh, John the Baptist, when Herod makes makes a, a rash oath uh, after dancing of, of Salome. Well, what else can we pull from this text? We're getting close to the end of the program. We have a few minutes left, so you know, take us through what are, what are the what are the take homes from people if they should learn nothing else from our text for today. What would you have them take home? Um, I would say that the, to take home would be that. Uh, Seek God's will first uh, before you're going, uh, rather than than putting your own will on these things. Uh, that God God has and God has a way of, of having a sense of humor too. I think with with some of our oaths, um, I'd kind of at one point <clears throat> before I went to the seminary, I'd kind of bargain, bargained with God, and it's kind of with the idea that that Lord, if you put if uh, was kind of going tough with what I was working right at that point. I said, but I enjoy what I'm doing right now. If you will uh, make it so that I, I realize that I I need to go into the ministry, this was was what I was looking uh, looking at, but I didn't really want to go. Uh, if you um, provide for my family uh, ahead of time and, and all of these sorts of things, then I'll go to the seminary. It wasn't until I decided that I was going to go to the seminary then. Actually, a lot of those things started started happening, but it sure wasn't because of my foolish, my <laughs> foolish oath or, or prayer. Well, I, that, I can appreciate that. I really can because uh, I had a similar thing happen to me right before I went to college. Um, you know, and I had no vision of going to the seminary. In fact, I was going for criminology, and uh, but I said, you know, well, you know, if and I said rashly. 
if the Lord wants to pay my way and provide for all, because it's about working while you're at school. If he wants to pay my way and so I don't have to work on weekends and pay for my college, then I'll go to church every Sunday. And I, I said it very crassly, very rashly. Um, and then it was such that I received um, financial aid and some other things, small scholarship stuff that would help me pay for school. So I could go to church if I wanted to. I didn't have to work. And yet I didn't. <laughs> and I worked anyway. <laughs> and within a few years, I can tell you, all those things were taken from me. And so then I had to work to finish paying school and to finish paying off. I ended up even going to school an extra year or so because of having to work. And so while I'm not going to directly say that that was in response to my rash foul, I can certainly appreciate looking back going, yeah, you know, I, I it wouldn't be surprised if God wasn't trying to teach me a lesson or two, a lesson that hopefully I have learned since then. Well, brother, I really appreciate you being on the program today. It's always nice to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you at our next Winkle. Uh, but that will uh, bring us towards the end of our program. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Robert Miller, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran Church in Jasper, Minnesota, and St. John Lutheran Church in Trosky, Minnesota, the Three Strands Parish. Brother, did I get it right that time? Yes, you did. Very good. <laughs> thanks, brother, and thanks for your understanding earlier. Uh, just happy to have you on the show. Tomorrow we will finish chapter 14 and move into chapter 15. Um, so in these chapters, God commands King Saul to destroy the Amalekites and all their possessions as, as a punishment for their attack on Israel when they left Egypt. Well, makes sense. It's pretty clear. And guess what? Saul obeyed, but only partially. Contrary to God's command, Saul ended up sparing their king Agag uh, and sparing the best of their animals as a spoil. So prophet Samuel confronted Saul for his disobedience, and he told him that Yahweh had officially rejected him as king. So lots of good stuff coming up. We'll cover those tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.